0: to have your books autographed by the authors. The books to buy are on the other side of the podium there, and you can have them uh, buy them and have them personalized by the authors at, in the middle of the gig here or afterwards. Um, and well, welcome to the Agony Column Live. I think that everybody here probably knows both of these men and has heard their voices or seen their work somewhere. With me tonight, um, right to my right, I have... Peter Beagle. He's the author of A Fine and Private Place, The Last Unicorn, The Innkeeper's Song, Summer Long, I'm Afraid You've Got Dragons, and the non-fiction collection, Smeagol, Deagle, and Beagle, Essays from the Headwaters of My Voice. His latest collection of short stories is We Never Talk About My Brother, and you've seen his work on Star Trek, you've seen it in The Lord of the Rings. Welcome to Peter Beagle. And... Oh,
1: I'm wonderfully happy to be here. I always forget how sentimental I am about Santa Cruz until I start, start hitting really Summit Drive,
0: about there. And also with us, we have a voice you'll recognize, I'm sure, it's Mr. Alan Chuse. He's the author of The Grandmother's Club and The Light Possessed. Three collections of short stories, a memoir titled Fall Out of Heaven, and a collection of essays listening to the page, adventures in reading and writing. He's also the critic for NPR's All Things Considered. His latest novel is To Catch the Lightning, and his latest book is the collection of travel essays, A Trance After Breakfast. Thank you for joining us, Alan. these two men both have a long and deep connection with santa cruz and actually have known one another for longer maybe than i've been around
1: <laughs> we were just debating it and i was afraid of that alan remembers it as 40 years and as in the last time we saw each other so rick where is it you were born
0: i was i was i was running around uh probably uh reading my first copy of uh, The Last Unicorn about that time, (laughs) along with Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, Princess of Mars. Uh, First, the way we do this is we have each of the authors read, so you can get a real feel for their voice. Uh, Peter's going to read a story, then Alan's going to read a story, then we might take a little break uh, so you can get some uh, libations at the cafe, uh, come up and talk with the authors. Then we're going to come back and we're going to have a pithy discussion about how these gentlemen both create worlds with words, and they do it quite well. So we're going to start uh, with Peter.
1: Alan, were you planning to do pithy? Pithy, that was. Pithy. Pithy. Pithy.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, Ezra Pound says poetry is made up of gists and piths. So I think he meant that kind of pith. Okay, alright, because I was Remembering a silly joke from my childhood, but never mind. You mean about the guy who wore a gist helmet? <laughs> no, I was thinking more of... Eric, what are you doing in the closet? I'm pissing. Boy's been locked, put in the closet the way people used to do with their children. I'm pissing on your shoes. I'm pissing on your coat. I'm pissing on daddy's golf clubs. <laughs> Mother remaining calm. What are you doing now, Eric? I'm waiting for more pith. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: will have lots of pith, but I'm not exactly sure if it's going to be the kind you'd find in that closet.
1: (laughs) I'm going to read a story very much out of my childhood, even if it is a fantasy. It's very much based in and around the world I grew up in, and I'm very fond of it. I was a boy, and it was spring in the Bronx. School would be out in less than two months. My friend Phil's folks had just gotten a television set and he and I could watch Ralph Bellamy in Man Against Crime on Friday nights. There was a new war on in Korea and red-haired Sandy Greenbaum was being even more insufferable than usual because her big brother Sam was some kind of aide to General Mark Clark, whose name she always pronounced in full like an incantation. Or perhaps a prayer, I wondered now. Who knows how frightened for Sam her family actually was. Maybe saying the general's whole name was a way of not stepping on a crack, not breaking the charm that would bring her brother home whole himself. What did I know? I was 11 years old and she was obnoxious and had freckles. I was 11 and it was spring. The dogwood was blossoming in the cemetery down the block. The park, two blocks away in the other direction, was bright with budding goldenrod and would be brilliant with forsythia and ragweed in another week or so. My allergy shots had already begun, but so, one after another, also like wildflowers in their season, had roller skates and bicycles, jacks and double dutch and hopscotch, which we called potsy for the girls, catch and one-o-cat and schoolyard fights for the pure hell of fighting for the boys, and stickball, between one day and the next, stickball again. Stickball is, was, I guess, who plays it now? street baseball played with broomsticks and a specific kind of ball. It was manufactured by the Spalding Company, though I never heard it called anything but a Spaldine, and was made of a particular kind of pink rubber which emitted a flaky whitish powder when fresh and smelled indescribably of of spring, finally, and of laundry drying on apartment building roofs and and on lines strung between apartment windows and sunlight lasting a little longer every day. In the Bronx, in 1950, spring smelled like spaldings. There were never enough players to make up two full teams. It was quite common for boys to play for both sides as necessary. Although choosing up sides, arguing over the fairness of which team got stuck with which fat or slow or stone-fingered kid could easily take longer than the game itself. As for the playing field, the ground rules literally varied with the parking along Tryon Avenue that afternoon. First and third bases were almost always cars that we made do with bicycles or wagons when we had to. Second and home were usually one manhole cover apart, though this might be affected by the spatial relationship of first and third. Since we were always short on fielders, if anyone actually had a glove, it usually wound up being a base. A hit that traveled as far as two manhole covers distance was an automatic double. So also was a ball hit into traffic wedged under a car or carried away forever by Richie Williams' damn dog. (laughs) A 3 manhole shot was a triple. Home runs, well, fat Stewie Hauser hit one once, far down the block toward the cemetery, and mean Joey Gonsalves hit one that he said was a homer. Go argue with Joey Gonsalves. He had brothers. (laughs) Of course, we could have walked two blocks to the park and played in a real baseball diamond, but that was just the point of stickball. It had to be played with sticks, not real bats, balls, and gloves. It had to be improvised from equipment to the contours of the baselines to the constantly evolving rules which were quite likely to be significantly different over on Decatur Avenue or DeKalb. You played baseball or softball in the park. Stickball was for the street only and always. Not all of life was that simple even in 1950, even at the age of 11, but stickball, oh stickball yes. I wasn't good at stickball, let's have that clear. I wasn't one of those chosen last or forced on one team or the other like a handicap, but I was a lot closer to that social class than to the stars like Stewie Hauser, Milty Mellinger, or JT Jones. The only athletic gift I had was that I could run, which wasn't much use in our game since we didn't have stolen bases the way they played down on Rochambeau Avenue. If I actually connected, I'd make it home well before anybody ran the ball down, but it didn't happen often. To this day, I remember every time that it did. Today, Tryon's lined with condos on both sides, but back then there were still a lot of trees and a lot of one-family houses, 30, 40 years old, older, most still occupied by the original owners who had built and settled in when the Bronx was still largely farming country, and my mother would often meet a cow or a goat on her way to school. Fragments of those farms survived in my own school years. They were usually inhabited by half-mad hermits who threw stones at kids trying to cut through their overgrown fields and blighted orchards. All gone now, of course, all leveled and paved over by the end of that decade. I'm not nostalgic, I just remember. Tryon Avenue had a witch. Many streets did. It was almost a necessity to local tradition. Back when a single block, a single apartment building, was an entire country for a child, complete with history, royalty, a peasant class, endless threats from outsiders, and a rich and varied folklore. The designated witch was always some old lady living alone, quite often foreign-born and oddly dressed by our highly puritanical standards for adults, and known to us beyond any reasonable doubt as implacably menacing whether or not she'd done anything at all to merit the verdict. Whatever else they had in common, the universal factor, going all the way back to the Brothers Grim and surely beyond, was that any ball hit into their front yards or their ragged little gardens stayed there forever. <coughs> we were often surprisingly daring, foolhardy even looking back, But we weren't crazy. Mrs. Polyakov was our witch. She lived about halfway down the block in a small gray house, which I keep seeing as stone, though I'm sure it wasn't, no more than it could have been gingerbread. (laughs) Mrs. Polyakov almost never left the gray house. Such deliveries as she needed came to her, as was more common in those days. Since we hardly kept exact track of just who went into the house and who came out, we were happy to spread, and by and by absolutely believe, A rumor that Mrs. Polyakov sometimes ate delivery men or turned them into things, which would certainly account for the absence of a Mr. Polyakov after all. We thought hard about stuff like that. We had discussions. We ruminated. She was a tiny woman really, gray and nondescript as her house, but we equipped her with fangs if you look closely, which nobody was about to do and with what the Italian kids called the malocchio and the Puerto Ricans, the malojo, the evil eye. My memory has her backing carefully down her front steps when she did come out, usually wrapped in an old tweed overcoat, no matter what the weather. She always wore a man's battered felt hat, and she limped a bit in her right leg. Spaldines, hidden to Mrs. Polyakov's yard, as I've said, were lost balls, even though we could usually see them where they lay against her fence, often actually within reach through the wobbly, peeling slats. She never threw them back, of course, but she never got rid of them either. So there they lay like spoils of some mysterious war nobody but the participants remembered. We visualized her gloating over them, using them to cast spells, as we knew beyond question she did. For spite, we threw other things into her yard at night, rotting garbage, dead animals, paper bags filled with patiently collected dog and cat shit, and then ran like hell. I felt bad sometimes thinking about it, but that'd teach her to be sitting up midnights casting spells. What changed everything, especially for me, was the day Chuck Golden dared me to go get the ball that I just fouled off into Mrs. Polyakov's front yard. Anything in the street, including parked cars and Schwartz's fruit truck, was fair territory. The curbs were our foul lines. Chuck Golden was a sawed-off loudmouth, but that Spalding happened to be our last one, and it was just wrong to quit playing on a Saturday with the sun still high. Junius Dinkins, who usually had more sense, said you hit it, you ought to get it. And Stewie Hauser, always the second guy to do or say anything, said he double-dared me. So there it was. You couldn't walk away from a double-dare, even from a dumb shit like Stewie. I mean, you could, but the rest of your life wouldn't ever be worth living after that. I knew that then, not believed, knew. But I also knew, absolutely, that if I entered that yard, I'd never come back. Not as myself, anyway, maybe as some kind of monster, which was almost tempting when I thought of Joey Gonsalves and all his brothers. What if Mrs. Polyakov grabbed me in her claws and dragged me into her house? That house we'd spent hours peopling with every horror we'd ever seen in a movie or a comic book. Oh, sure, my mom and dad would call the cops. But what good would the police be if I'd already been eaten? Or fed into a meat grinder or turned into furniture? I wasn't aware of it until later. But it was in that moment that I woke up to the realization that you couldn't depend on your parents in a real crisis any more than you could on the police. I never managed to unlearn that discovery, though I did try. But when you're, when you're 11 years old, there's no such thing as a choice between being a witch's afternoon snack or being a fink in the chicken shit. I made the best scene I could, having already seen A Tale of Two Cities, out of accepting my doom and rot them, the team played right back to me. They didn't exactly ask for any last messages to my nearest and dearest, but JT Jones shook my hand hard, and Miltie gave me back the Emmy he'd won off me two weeks before. And I handed my broomstick to Richie Williams, as formally as if it were a sword or a custom-made pool cue, and I made my legs walk me straight across the street and into Mrs. Polyakov's front yard. I picked up the ball I'd hit, suddenly entertaining a mad notion of scooping up as many others as I could carry and racing back in triumph behind enemy lines with an armload of trophies to flaunt both at Chuck Golden and at Mrs. Polyakov. That vision lasted until I heard her voice, deep and rough as a man's. "'Boy, you!' She was standing on her top step, beckoning to me with an appropriately claw-like forefinger. For once, she wasn't wearing that weird tweed topcoat, with a long dark wool skirt and blouse that made her look like our idea of a gypsy. The old fedora covered her scanty white hair, giving substance to our belief that she wore it even in bed. She said it a second time, You! I'd never heard her voice before. None of us had, as far as I ever knew. As long as she'd lived in that gray house, she must have yelled at two or three generations of children to stay out of her yard. By the time we came along, it wasn't necessary anymore. The fear had been passed down to us with the legend. And however much we might mock her in private, she didn't have to say a word to scatter us when she wanted to. Our parents, when they noticed, teased us for scaredy-cats, but we knew what we knew. Now I walked slowly toward her, feeling my friend's terror behind me, but unable to turn my head. I stopped at the bottom of Mrs. Polyakov's front steps. She looked at me out of eyes so gray they were almost black, eyes younger than the drooping, wrinkled lids under which they studied me. The grating, heavily accented voice Russian, I think now, but maybe Polish, said, you ball, boy? Uh, I said, uh-uh. yeah, yes, my ball, our, our ball. That game, Mrs. Polyakov said, what game? Lapta? Oddly enough, I knew about Lapta because my mother was born in the Ukraine. Lapta involves a bat and ball and a lot of running back and forth, but it's more like cricket than baseball. I said, no, no Lapta, stick ball, stick ball. Mrs. Polyakov said, "'Steak,' and then, "'Stick's ball,' and about got it right. I nodded eagerly. "'Stick ball, that's it. We play it all the time. We don't mean to hit the balls into your yard. We're really sorry.' My own voice gradually dried up as I stared into those old, gray, relentlessly clear eyes. "'Can we... could we have our ball back now?' "'Ball, okay?' And I held the rescued Spauldine up so she'd understand what I was talking about. "'Ball?' Quicker than I can say this, she snatched that ball back from me, holding it over her head as though she expected me to jump for it. No, yet, no ball. And she pointed toward the street with her free hand. I thought she was telling me to get the hell out of her yard, but that wasn't it either. Nor was she throwing me out when she grabbed my arm and started walking with me, saying, Game, huh? Show. Show me Sticks ball. You show. And here we came, the two of us marching as to war, back into the street where my friends were standing, gaping at us, some of them backing away from a scary old neighborhood witch, some of them with word, wor- none of them with a word to say. She was enjoying herself. You could actually see it in the glint of her eyes and the way she limped over to J.T. Jones and slapped the Spaldeen into his hand. Sticks ball, okay, huh? Show. I wonder less about how she guessed that J.T. was our pitcher than how she knew that we used a pitcher at all. Most teams didn't, no matter how much the rules vary block to block. In the majority of stickball games, the batter just tosses the ball up himself and times his swing to its descent. But we always had a real pitcher, even though this meant our taking turns at catcher, even if he had to pitch for both sides, as he mostly did. And JT was good, even throwing underhand. And he was honest as well, never took anything off his pitches when we were at bat, which pissed some guys off, but most of us were proud of him. He was a legend, at least in the North Bronx at least on Tryon Avenue and all the way to Jerome on one side and down to Webster the other way, down to White Plains Road, really. We chose up sides again and started a new game, but who could keep his mind on playing with that woman who terrified us all our lives, standing there watching, her hands behind her back and a very slight smile on her whiskery old lips. J.T.'s hands were so sweaty the ball kept getting away from him and Milty Mellinger kept losing the broomstick when he swung for the same reason. Almost nailed me one time, the thick flew straight at my head. We hit all right, so much that keeping score quickly became pointless. JT wasn't up to anything but just laying it in there, and even the weakest hitters like Howie Stern and Marv Cooper were slamming it over the parked cars and the green trees for the rest of us to run down. Not me, though. I struck out three or four times and slunk off to lean against Howie's father's Packard, which was our dugout. For all the scoring, nobody talked or cheered much. I remember that. Mrs. Polyakov said, huh, again, loudly, like a whale coming up to blow. She said, sticks ball, give me, give. She held out her hand. JT looked around at everyone before he put the Spaldeen into her hand. Stewie Hauser said, "Okay, relief pitcher coming in. Pop that glove, Bubba, and crouched down to catch. Bubba is grandma, but nobody laughed. Mrs. Polyakov adjusted her fedora and turned the rubber ball slowly between the swollen, knuckled fingers of both hands, studying the Spalding logo. She studying studying the Spalding logo intently for minutes before she looked up and repeated, Okay. She gestured to Marv to stand in, even though he wasn't due up yet. He didn't argue. Mrs. Polyakov gave an arthritic little hop, clumsily imitating J.T.'s motion, and she pitched. Marv never saw it. I'm not sure Stewie did, either, until he was yelling, Jesus Christ, son of a bitch, and, and sucking his fingers as the ball bounced away from him toward the sidewalk. JT's mouth was open, and Richie Williams was actually crossing himself. <laughs> Junius Dinkins was just saying softly, no, man, over and over. And Mrs. Polyakov beckoned, as she had beckoned to me in her front yard, and the Spalding came back to her. It rolled meekly then. Later on, it came bouncing jauntily, as though it knew the way better. Mrs. Polyakov was an awkward fielder. Anyone who even made contact would easily have been on base by the time she picked the ball up. But none of us ever did. J.T. managed a couple of trickling fouls, but that was it. The Spalding either came in so impossibly fast and hard that after a little we were bailing out before she released it. <laughs> or else the thing simply zigzagged, dodged our bats, curved around us, dropped literally out of sight, or changed its pink rubber mind and backed up in mid-flight. <laughs> Satchel Page messed with batter's heads by warning and half convincing him that he could make a baseball do all these things. Mrs. Polyakov was doing it, and doing it with a toy you could get at Lappin's Corner Store for 49 cents with tax, cheaper you buy a dozen. I will always believe, and so I promise you, will anyone else who was there, that she could have done exactly the same thing with a pair of rolled-up gym socks. Stewie Hauser hadn't stopped saying, Jesus Christ, from that first pitch. And Milty Mellinger kept mumbling, it's a trick. She does something to the ball, a spin. (laughs) Chuck Golden, who always had to know more than you did, was explaining learnedly, she's throwing a spitball, that's illegal. My dad told me about (laughs) spitballs. Some of the girls jumping rope and pushing doll carriages had stopped playing were staring from the sidewalk. There were even one or two adult onlookers who could tell that something was going on. We ourselves would have quit if we could. But Mrs. Polyakov wouldn't let us, not until she was good and ready. We'd have to keep dragging our broomsticks up there all night if she wanted, (laughs) through all eternity if she chose. That we knew without a word. All the same, she gave me my one great moment in sports, there in the cobblestone street at 5 o'clock on a spring afternoon, with mothers already starting to call from windows about dinner and homework. When I stepped in for one last hopeless at bat against her, she gave me a gray, snaggly grin, the only real smile everyone ever had from her, and she called in to me, For you, boy, for brave. And she grooved one. It floated in, chest high, not veering, not dropping or hopping, just minding its own business, timing itself to my swing rather than the other way around. Shirley Temple couldn't have missed it. (laughs) Miss Eschenberg, who taught fourth grade, couldn't have missed it. My seven-year-old brother couldn't have missed it. And for once, I didn't miss it. It vanished down the block, tearing through leaves, knocking down twigs, soaring high and far enough to clear the cemetery wall. I can't say whether it actually did or not, or would have, because it caught fire at the top of its arc. (laughs) Simply burst into flames as it flew on out of sight. We never found any charred fragments. Though Stewie Hauser hunted for two days, determined to prove that it hadn't outdistanced his legendary home run. Nobody else cared, but I understood those things mattered then. Mrs. Polyakov looked briefly after my shot, said, huh, to herself, pushed her fedora hard, down hard on her head, and turned back toward her house. We never moved, but stood watching her, sensing perhaps that the game, or whatever it really was, might be ended, but that something was not yet complete. Just before entering her yard, she turned again to face us, waiting there in the street. Her face was dark and warning under the old hat, and not at all friendly. Next ugly in my yard, she said clearly, next nasty. And she pointed to indicate the last flight of the Spaldeen. Same thing you, all you. Now she waved both arms as high as she could reach and went, wow! All heads, all heads like you ball, wow! We must all have been at least halfway home when I heard her call after us. You come, get balls. Balls, okay. I think she was laughing, but I've never been sure. In any case, it took me a week to get Junius Dinkins' nerve up, but then we went together and rescued all the abandoned Spaldines littering her front yard. Mrs. Polyakov didn't put in an appearance, though Junius swore that he caught a glimpse of that felt hat slipping around a corner. Not her, just the hat. (laughs) Keeping an eye on us, which could have been true. Witches' hats are magic, too, as any 11-year-old can tell you. Or they could have then.